this is a citizen's going wild during a time of much turmoil. And so I thought I would start out by telling you the story of Minneapolis, what's been going on there, not exactly in regard to race, but exactly in terms of who is running things there. And to a large degree, this is the story of Lisa Bender, Minneapolis City Council President. Bender first came into Minneapolis, and her first cause was transforming streets into bike lanes. The plan was to have 60% of the residents of Minneapolis use bikes, walking or taking the bus by 2030. And she thought this would be just well, uh, which it might have been, but not quite as the way it worked out. Um, People uh, uh, were complaining uh, that the police had ordered them to stay out of the snow. And they were, one fellow was very angry when they were in the bike lane in the snow. And he said that the cops might have terrified my fellow cyclists and pedestrians who are less privileged than myself. And who may have been much more frightened in these sort of interactions than my cis, male, white, straight, presenting uh, the bike lanes weren't being used very much, so the Minneapolis Bike Coalition uh, stepped up and said it was because of racism. And besides uh, Lisa Bender, uh, there are other people on the town council there, and it's quite a little circus they have. Uh, they have Keith Ellison's son. Now, Keith Ellison is the uh, man who's the Attorney General of, Min of uh, Minnesota and who will probably be presiding over the upcoming uh, court uh, events that will happen because of the killing that occurred there. Keith Ellison's son describes himself as a visual artist, storyteller, and political organizer. There's another person on there, Philippe. Cunningham, who said he is progressive, black, queer, and trans. And there's Lisa Goodman, activist and dog mom. That's the type of people that are dealing with bike lanes in Minnesota. And I'm beginning to get a bad feeling that a lot of people who were like that, who were dealing with problems regarding the police, that didn't work very well. Uh, what happened was when they... Uh, Sort of, they didn't defund the police, but they changed things around a lot with a lot of rules that hemmed in the police. And there was a spike in robberies. Uh, Bender was a defender of the idea of defunding the police. And uh, she said on social media and CNN, Lisa Bender said that the only way of defunding the police will work is if people check their privilege and refused to call the police when they're being robbed or mugged. She is still in office. The Minneapolis City Council members have claimed that policing is rooted in white supremacy. And so we'll see what uh, this will do. Some people think that uh, Lisa Bender and her fellow student council politicos are ushering in an era of Lord of the Flies. We will see what happens there. I know that's not directly related to the tragedy that has occurred there, uh, but it shows you who's in charge.
Let's get right to the question of systemic racism. Is there or is there not systemic police racism? According to my way of analyzing things, as I did for, you know, 37 years as a professor in teaching public policy analysis, the evidence is fairly plain. There is not systemic police racism. And the way you can prove this is to ask, well, one way you can do it is ask how many unarmed people were shot and killed by the police. And uh, it turns out that the statistics are always in this framework. Uh, last two years, uh, nine uh, uh, black pe unarmed black people were shot and killed by the police. That doesn't mean they got away with it. The police got away with it. It just means that's how many were killed. At the same time, 19 white people were shot and killed by the police. And if we believe in, you know, objectivity and evidence, rationality, it would seem clear that the police are not gunning specifically for black people. This does not mean that the police are not hassling uh, black people more. My guess is that they are hassling black people more. Just saw a video on TV where the police were aggravating some of the black teenagers for jaywalking. Just kind of very sad and unnerving to see. But as far as systematic, heavy duty killing, and there does not seem to be any evidence whatsoever that there is systemic black racism, at least on the heavy-duty end, where people are killed or not killed. And we also have to keep in mind that African Americans um, did heavy-duty killing people crimes at a much higher rate than white people. Uh, a better question perhaps to ask is why the hell there's so much killing by the police? Um, regardless of color, we kill, uh, the, we, the police kill about a thousand people a year in this country. And uh, it's nothing like what they do in Europe, where I assume they have uh, bad people and good people there. Um, in Europe, they have countries that um, no one is killed by the police. I don't know what's wrong with those people up there. But uh, those little tiny, well, kind of boutique countries like Norway, uh, Sweden, Denmark, uh, they have uh, zero people shot and killed by the police. I don't know if they're lazy or what, but they don't seem to find it necessary to kill so many damn people black, white, or anything in between. Um, there's uh, something else as well, and that is that if you measure this, the way you should measure it is uh, death by police force uh, per five million. And um, we're way up there. Countries that are more comparable to the United States, like Germany, um, have about, uh, we have 
five times more killings per population than they do. And it's just amazing if you look at a chart and you see the number of people killed by the police is huge, huge here. And in Europe, it's much smaller. It goes from zero to about 36 people a year. Um, now, it's always possible that we have more criminals, but it's also kind of possible that um, we just shoot too damn many people, black, white, and anything in between. Uh, I don't know what the solution to that is, but I, I think uh, we might want to take a look at that and stop focusing so strongly on the racial aspect. Um, it looks like a lot of us, black and white, need to calmer police. Let me put it like that. There's another issue that we might want to take a look at here, and that is the police contracts. Uh, I am just finding out that the police contracts are written with a lot of input from the police. That's a nice way to put it. The police in America often um, basically have a, a tremendous amount of influence in the police contracts. And the police contracts often are very, very deferential to the police. And you can look at different contracts, which are all different across the United States. But one thing they seem to have is there are an awful lot of times when you can get another review of the facts of the, uh, the situation built in and of the parties, uh, what I found most often was there are at least four steps, stages, where the police can have another review. So even if you're found guilty, you can appeal, you can appeal, and you can appeal once more. That's a lot of appeals. Uh, in addition, uh, a lot of the police contracts, uh, employment contracts, uh, have a situation whereby uh, there's arbitration. Instead of going the whole, whole hog legal manner and taking it to court, uh, a lot of these issues by contract must be settled by arbitration. Okay, that's an interesting concept. But here's the kicker. In these contracts, um, what I've seen the police have a lot of influence in choosing the arbitrator. That is, they know in advance who's going to be the arbitrator, and they have a lot of weight, sometimes total control of who gets to be the arbitrator. Now, let's say you're an arbitrator and you won't work because the arbitrators are paid. <clears throat> Do you think that you'll get a lot of work if you continue to find the police guilty? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, half of the cities in the United States have collective bargaining agreements that require the removal of police disciplinary records over a period of time. So on top of all of that, the disciplinary records disappear. It's almost like, you know, if you're a teenager and you're too young, you, your crime can be erased. Well, the, the the records of the police can be erased. Um, I am not even certain if the police should have collective bargaining. I mean, what's next? Marines have collective bargaining. 
Sergeant, it's time for the 20-minute break, and I'm taking it right now. If you want to assault Mount Suribachi, you you're free to go, but I'm taking my 20-minute break right now. The whole thing is bizarre. The whole idea of the police having um, arbitration is bizarre. The idea of the police having the right to choose the arbitrator is even more bizarre. And in my mind, at least, the idea of having police be able to have unions is is tantamount to insanity. It, It just makes no sense. And if you have any doubts about it, ask yourself, should the Marines have a arbitration? Should they be able to choose the arbitrator? Should the Marines have a, a contract with a specified uh, laws and rules and regulations? I don't think so. I just don't think so. And you're welcome to comment on that. But the whole idea of collective bargaining with the police is very, very strange idea. Uh, we're used to it in this country, but uh, I don't know why. Okay, I've calmed down now, and I wanted to go into certain areas that don't get much publicity. And one of the things, one of the reasons why people might vote for Trump is that, to a large degree, until Trump came along, conservatives were getting the short end of the stick when it came to being appointed to um, to judgeships. Now, maybe Trump is going too far, but take a listen to this. There's a 15-member Committee on Codes of Contact, Conduct in the Judicial Conference of the United States. And once a year, all the federal judges get together and uh, they review policies, they write new policies, they think of things like that. What this 15-judge Committee on Codes of Conduct of the Judicial Conference of the United States has circulated to them is a draft of a set of rules that would basically exclude uh, the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society is a conservative organization. It was started about 30, 40 years ago. And the idea was to sort of buck up the conservatives in the legal profession. They go to lectures, they have conferences, things like that. The committee of this Judicial Conference of the United States that applies to all federal judges has issued a um, a memo, I guess, that declared that if you're a member of the Federalist Society, that it should be considered tantamount to unethical conduct. So if you're conservative, basically, they're saying you're not going to be in... Um, maybe you'll be invited, but you certainly will not be allowed, uh, if you want to be a federal judge, if you join the Federalist Society, it's going to look bad. In other words, we only want to hear from liberals. Now, uh, I think conservatism is a valid position. I'm not talking about crazy people. I'm talking about ordinary conservative views that, well, the founding fathers probably had. Uh, and then the idea of banning people because they belong to a conservative organization strikes me as uh, totally outrageous. 
And yet, this sort of thing, it goes on all the time. It certainly goes on on college campuses. And the group that I'll just call the liberals for the moment, the extreme liberals, think it's perfectly valid to um, exclude conservatives. Uh, the idea, the older idea of um, everyone into the pool, let's battle it out in debate rather than battle it out in battle, um, no longer the mainstream point of view. It is no longer the mainstream point of view in liberal legal arena and on college campuses that if you have views, uh, they should be allowed. And we talk about it. That's how we sort things out. I mean, there are only two ways to do it. Either you hit people or you talk it through. And a lot of the people on the left the mild manner liberals have decided not all views are valid, and the views, in my opinion, is not valid. We don't want to hear about it. I, I find this very, very scary. Very, very scary. Because what they're saying is not all views should be said. Now, if you're talking about I have a view that you should be killed, that's different. If I'm talking about I have a view that we should go over to Harry's house and burn it down, that shouldn't be allowed. And it's not allowed, by the way. There are laws called terroristic threatening laws that exclude that sort of thing. Can't threaten violence, get away with it. We shouldn't. And mainly you won't. You can't blackmail people. You can't use force. But if we're not going to be able to talk about it, if you're not going to let the conservatives have a voice, what the hell are we going to do? Shut down everyone's voice except mine or yours or maybe the two of us. I don't like it. Meanwhile, colleges are reacting in a very cowardly way to this conversation that we're having about race and in just ridiculous ways. There's a very good music college called Berkeley College in, uh, I believe it's Boston. And uh, it's just a wonderful place. If you're interested in music, 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 this is where you go. Well, uh, recently, Berkeley College apologized for allowing police to use the bathrooms after a protest. There was a protest. The administration invited the police um, not to hit anybody, but just come and calm people down there. And they were posted at a certain intersection of Mass Avenue and Bolton Street. And they were led into the by the public safety staff to use the bathrooms. And uh, they and I guess they went in there and peed to their heart's content. And uh, but later on this the students actually objected to this sort of darn thing. Um I haven't seen this stuff since the 60s. Um, I remember uh, one school where I taught, the, the students followed the CIA recruiters into the bathroom and harassed This is even more ridiculous. They won't allow them to, well, they just won't allow, didn't want it. They were upset, okay? Uh, they felt it undermined Berkeley's support for Black Lives Matter. 
And the administration said, Lordy, oh, Lordy. This is a quote. We have heard from many of you personally and across social channels of your hurt and anger. God almighty, this generation it gets hurt by every fleck of dust that flies by. We have heard from many of you personally and across social channels of your hurt and anger that this access was permitted, especially as the faculty is now currently open for students and members of our community. Allowing police officers into the space was in no way meant to undermine Berkeley's support for Black Lives Matter. We understand that many members of our community feel betrayed. We're deeply sorry for the impact this had on our community and for, perpetu and for perpetuating feelings of oppression, silencing, and marginalization. We will make a more concerted effort to consider the effects of our actions, and next time we'll force the cops in their pants. So I, that, 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 that part I made up. But it does say we will make a more concerted effort to consider the effects of our actions. Well, <laughs> for some reason, bathrooms seem to figure heavily in the, in the, the um, upset course to the various snowflakes and college campuses. Um, I just noticed that in 2017, the University of California, Berkeley, requested that security guards be posted on campus for a speech given by a um, radical person. And they did not use the public restrooms as, quote, it was upsetting some students. This is the most easily upset group ever. I just have trouble picturing them as storming the beaches of Normandy. Uh, well. Um, I do want to talk about something else here, and that is something that might come up in the upcoming election. There are certain areas where Trump, and only Trump, has done something. And I, I don't know, this might make an issue here. There's certainly a number of things that Trump has done wrong, but maybe there are a few things where he's done right. For example, he is, as far as I know, <coughs> excuse me, the only president, and I'm certain of this, who's done a damn thing about the raging anti-Semitism that goes on on college campuses now. Everything from slandering Jews to mocking them and to demanding, yes, demanding genocide be committed against the Middle East. No one has done a darn thing until Trump. Trump has done a number of things. One of the things is he's threatened the funding for Middle East Studies program. Uh, in 2011, after the terrorist attack on our nation, we decided we didn't have many experts on the Middle East in languages, in, um, in their history, and so on and so on and so forth. So we put out a multi, multi, multi-million dollar uh, effort to gain more experts. And what we did was we gave money to colleges, universities, 
to take some measures to try and cut down on the on anti-Semitic onslaught that was occurring on college campuses. Um, Trump is the only one who is fighting back, period, period, period. And I get worried, a lot worried, that when Biden gets in, he will not cut back. He will keep going and keep supporting the people there who apparently get their kicks out of anti-Semitic attacks on Jews. Now, he's done a couple of things here. One of them is that um, when you have a word that there is something anti-Semitic happening on campus, uh, the Department of Education should investigate the use of grants under Title VI of the Higher Education Act. Title VI, when all laws are passed, they're eventually grouped into various areas. And one of the areas involves uh, discrimination, uh, in this case, against Jews, and that that's Title VI. Title VII may deal with, I don't know, highways. Title VIII may deal with defense contracts. Anyway, uh, the important point is that we now have some leverage on college campuses. And uh, the, he has issued, among other things, an executive order on con... con yeah an executive order on combating anti-Semitism. Under that order, it prohibits forms of discrimination rooted in anti-Semitism. And this is going to be enforced. One of the ways to enforce it is to have a congressman write a letter and say there is discrimination here, there, or anywhere else, and that if you don't knock it off, um, we're going to withdraw the grant. Colleges and universities are always money hungry, and they're always looking for money. And what we're saying is, well, we'll give you money if you're going to study languages. Well, we won't give you money if your uh, focus is on denying uh, such things as denying the Jewish people a right to self-determination. That is, if you have someone who claims that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor... If you use double standards to judge Jews, well, then we're taking back our money. You can do that, I suppose, but you're going to do it on our on your own, and we're not going to pay you to spit at Jewish people. Um, okay, and uh, this has happened a number of times. This is one of several efforts to uh, rein in the Middle East Studies program. The Middle East Studies programs. Um, have become a potent lobbying group, and they've become a vicious group attacking Jews constantly. Um, they, they claim Jews are, are committing genocide against Palestinians, which is a stupid claim because their population has gone up five times since Israel came into existence. Nonetheless, um, the People on college campuses continue to slander Jews, to threaten them with genocide, and so on and so forth. And uh, this is the first time anyone has fought back. The Middle East Studies Association has become a um, free fire zone for anti-Jewish bigotry. 
There is support for groups like uh, that you may not have heard of, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, which has very little to do with justice in Palestine and a lot to do with boycotting Israel, slandering Jews, and things such as that. The president of the uh, Middle East uh, Studies Association supports academic boycotts of Israel. That is, we should not have any uh, exchanges of professors. Their professors should not come here to give talks. Our professors should not go there to give talks. Uh, but now we have uh, these people who are giving the uh, bigots against Jews in Israel um, kind of a shot across the bow here. And the number of uh, Middle East Studies Association uh, has grown and grown, and uh, they are in the most prestigious campuses, such as Duke and Georgetown. Uh, demanding a boycott of Israel is considered anti-Semitism. Um, past president of the Middle East Studies Association is uh, consistently anti-American, anti-Western, and anti-Israel. And uh, the question arises, should we pay people to spit in their faces? Apparently, we can get plenty of spit without doing that. But it's nice to see, from my point of view, that we're starting at least to shoot across the bow. I would like to shoot um, in the middle of the, their ship, but still, uh, I would like to uh, On college campuses, Things become as, as insane as ever, and is well. Here's the headline: UCLA professor on leave. That is, he was told he will take the year off uh, after students blast the response to request to postpone final exam is woefully racist. Some students wrote and said that they would like to uh, not take the um, final exam, at least this time because of the, all of the uh, turmoil and all of the pain they were suffering because of the um, impact of George Floyd's death. And George Floyd was had his life choked out of him by a vicious cop, put his knee in his neck and didn't let up until uh, he was dead. Um, UCLA said they are committed to creating a learning, working, and living environment that is free from discrimination, harassment, or retaliation. And that means that the, this the professor not only is um, told that it, what was he doing was wrong, he basically said this is when the exam is taken, this is when you have to take it. And this got the students concerned, and the university reacted by saying that um, uh, this professor won't even be here for the next. Um, Chelsea Clinton, you may have seen this, was uh, attacked by people uh, who, because she said one nice thing about the Jews, um, one of the uh, more outspoken anti-Semites in Congress is uh, Representative Ilya, Ilhan Omar. And she said that Jews uh, only reacted, uh, why did people support Israel? Why did Congress people 
support Israel. And she said it's all about the Benjamins, it's all about the money, which is a classic anti-Semitic trope. Anyway, Chelsea uh, Clinton wrote and said you should say things like that, it's anti-Semitic. Because of that, she was attacked uh, by two students who ran up to her. She was attending a pro-Muslim rally at the time. Two strangers accosted her and said that um, this right here, what she said in reprimanding Congressman Ilhan Omar, is the result of a massacre stoked by people like you. And the words you put out in the word, I want you to know that, and I want you to feel it deep down inside. Forty-nine people died because of the rhetoric put out. Um, and these were apparently typical NYU students. Um, public shaming, which is what they were attempting to do, um, is um, live and well on college campuses. I want to mention one other thing. And I'll save that. Uh, I think I'll end uh, with something a little bit lighter here, um, which I will do as soon as I locate it. And it shows two people uh, having a drink together, and the woman says to the man, it's hard to believe that the good old days were just a short, few short months ago. I have a better. Here you go. This something you didn't know. And this is the last thing I will happily mention on this show. Okay. Have you ever heard of a guy called Big Cheek? Big Cheek. Those are the little things below your eyeballs. He was the grandson of slaves, a boy born in a poor neighborhood in New Orleans known as Back of the Town. His father abandoned the family when the child was an infant. His mother became a prostitute and the boy and sister had to live with their grandmother. Early in life, he proved to be gifted for music, and with three other kids, he sang in the streets of New Orleans. His first gains were coins that were thrown to them. The Jewish family, Karnofsky, who had immigrated from Lithuania to the United States, had pity on the four-year-old boy and brought him into their home. Um, initially, giving work to the house to feed this hungry child. Anyway, then he re there he remained and slept in this Jewish family's home where, for the first time in li his life, he was treated with kindness and tenderness. When he went to bed, Mrs. Karnofsky sang him a Russian lullaby that he would sing with her. Later, he learned to sing and play several Russian and Jewish songs. Over time, the boy was finally adopted as the son of this family. The Karnofskys gave him money to buy his first musical instrument, as was custom in Jewish families. They sincerely admired his Jewish talent. Later, when he became a professional musician and composer, he used these Jewish melodies and compositions, such as St. James Infirmary and Go Down Moses. The young black boy grew up and wrote a book about this Jewish family who had adopted him in 1907 in memory of this family and to the end of his life. He wore a star of David and said that in this family he had learned how to live a real life in determination. He might recognize his name. The little boy was called Louis Satchmo Arms. He proudly spoke 
fluent Yiddish, that spell is Yiddish for big cheeks. I hope you enjoy that. Then they get through there. <laughs> 